You're listening to a Sovereign Hill Church uh, podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam. Information that we need to share with you guys. Let's pray. So First Thessalonians 4, verse 13, it says, Once again, but we do not want you to be unemployed about those who are asleep and the things that you did in our life, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep as well. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a triumph command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them to fly. To meet the Lord in the air, so, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with, with these words. We have been, now, concerning uh, the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no anything written after you get our new giving commitment. For you yourselves uh, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a piece of the While people are saying there is peace and security, but sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day will surprise you like a beast, because you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep away from the sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get in the ground are drunk at night. But since we be all day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of hope and salvation. For God is not destined us so for that, that kind of forced us to, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Now, when we first started this passage, passage, we talked about the complexity of this passage. There's a lot going on here, a lot that we have to discern and try to figure out together. And, and most people want to spend a bulk of their time trying to figure out when this passage happens. When do these events take place? And I told you that the real complexity of the passage is figuring out how to at least um, apply daily what Paul's calling us to do. But the word of the passage is not nearly as important as what to do with it for the here and now. So that's where we have to um, make sure that we're being faithful to what Paul's calling us to, to what the text is calling us to. We've emphasized over the past couple weeks that the purpose is to comfort family and not to satisfy all our curiosity. That Paul very intentionally, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, communicates to the church what the church needs to know about these events. So it's not to satisfy our curiosity, not to help us fill in all the gaps of the timeline of when this takes place, but simply to give us information that comforts us in a way that we have not grieve like lost people, that we don't live life like lost people. Paul's encouragement calls for the believer to make sure that the students are always in line. we got to move on this. He wants to increase the church's theology about the end times so that it helps us on a daily basis feel the right thing. So we're excited about that. We don't in the aspect of death, the example that he gives us. We don't grieve in death by someone who doesn't have an understanding of the return of Jesus. His major concern is that if we lack knowledge, we will lack who really felt like we talked about the fact that there were people in this church that were trying to teach false things about the end times. But the day of the Lord had already happened. 
that Jesus had already come back. So we need right theology. We need right knowledge about the end times so we can rightly hope in our future. So in the past couple of weeks, we've been emphasizing some things that we gain by studying the end times. Studying the end times brings information. Paul tells us he doesn't want us to be uninformed. So there is information that we need about the end times. And that information brings us hope. And that's just that Jesus died and rose again. God will bring with him those who are asleep. So we have a, hopefully a correct understanding of death and the future of those that die because they obviously live all We don't have to wait for but our loved ones, that we get a glimpse of what that's going to look like. Jesus comes, he brings the souls of those that have died already, and we are reunited with them forever. And those families are going to have to It brings clarity. He does give us some details. We're trying to handle it. He's intentional with those details. So we're not going to push up in the dark about how all this plays out. We know that when Jesus returns, that the dead will rise first and we will meet the Lord in the air. So ultimately, that's the climax that we get to be with Jesus forever in this situation. And then we look at the fact that we are to find comfort from these words, as well as pass on that comfort. We turn courage to one another with this teaching. That we would never and ultimately, I think it's implied by the year two that share this teaching in such a way so that the funerals of our loved ones are comforting to us. And we never intend to ask so we're to cut down on the amount of funerals that we so go to. There's just a lot of concern uh, because people that we care about that we know are not with the Lord. So we're to actively seek to evangelize based on this teaching. This is not something that we're trying to do. And then two weeks ago, we saw that studying the end times also brings preparedness. Preparedness. And we began to discuss what the day of the Lord is from an Old Testament context. That God brings judgment. He brings judgment, but there's salvation offered to those that repent. So how we experience the day of the Lord varies on who we are. We love and we're in Christ, if we're children of God, children of the light, children of the day, then the day of the Lord is that glorious day when Jesus returns and sets all things right. If we're, if we're children of the darkness, if our Father is Satan, we're, we're drunk and we're asleep, that will come upon us like a thief comes upon someone in the night. Rather than later. So we talked about how to prepare for the day of the Lord to we see. So give us a day. Tell us what this will happen so we can be prepared for the Lord. Paul says, the day is not important. You live like it could happen any day, basically. He's prepared with the anticipation that it could happen. Uh, at any time. Liberty to tell you prices, so there's some things that we can know about the day of the Lord. We said that, is that that's got to stay obviously a little bit so that the timing of Jesus' return is unprofitable for us to live. Jesus won't tell his disciples. Paul won't tell the church. It seems to be unprofitable information. And we talked about some reasons why. But if we knew where Jesus was coming back, it would affect how soon he got ready for the second year. It would affect how much effort by the third year to know we have got time to wait on our really serious about living this life. the first year. So the fact that we sound like the gods. Spur that on to live and talk about the fact that it impaired every single thing. So that information would be unprofitable for us. 
The timing of Jesus' return will be unexpected. It's going to come at a time when we don't expect it. We're moving there, anticipating. And while it's unexpected, it's certain. And he uses two analogies to show that. So it's as unexpected as a thief coming in the night. Maybe, but it's certain as a woman who's praying going into labor. But there's still a level of uncertainty there. But there's the guarantee that it will happen. And someone who's pregnant will go into labor. And so Jesus will. Come back, even though we don't know when. We're praying for direction. He's very clear. We got the news. But for those that are unprepared, there will be no escape. And we emphasize the fact that there's no double negative there, which in the days that came, we're planning on coming to you. It will not happen. There will be no more to escape. None. That's how we stand as far as the day of the Lord. But to give you just an idea of many ways we prepare for it, we talked about the peace and security. It's not happening so much that there will be a time of world peace necessarily. It's the fact that people will find peace and security in their situation, in their sin. There's no urgency to get things right, just like in the times of Noah. There's no urgency to, to recognize that something is coming. And I was my sixth grade um, learning about this 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 building. Noah obviously had conversations with people as he's building this huge structure and nobody does anything. We're trying to get the renovation cost. I mean this didn't come as a complete shocker, as a complete surprise. It's just that people continue to say peace and security, there is no rain. It's never rained before. Why would it start raining now? I can't remember that's how you guys the update. Jesus has never come with judgment of fire. Why would it start out now? And we see that parallel in Second Peter where it says that it'll be like the times of Noah. Now, when people are saying everything's fine, everything's continued like it always has, and the Jesus will return. Not with fire, but with fire. We're going to have two weeks to go, which means not counting. But we can prepare for his return. We can become children of the day. We can become children of the light. And that's Paul's comfort to these people. So the money are there. He says, you don't have to worry about this day because you are ready for it. You, you are children of the day. You are. We don't want to be children of the light. And so now we move to the last point for this section, number six, so that we can study the end times and bring perseverance. Study the end times brings perseverance. To pull our money together to do bigger things that we normally wouldn't be able to. Afford. So, so then let us not sleep as others do, but those people they can be sober. Those who sleep sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. We don't have and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Purposes for that money, we've still been given. For God has not destined us for wrath, as far as missions. So to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another. That money, it actually just as you are doing. Two questions that I want to strive for us to answer this morning. What type of person are you, and what destiny do you have? Now there is. The other Paul is comparing and contrasting in these remaining verses here. He's comparing and contrasting darkness and light, day and night, asleep and awake, drunk and sober. He's comparing two groups of people here. Those that are in darkness, those that are part of the night, those that are drunk and those that are asleep. And in those that have been awakened from that state, those that are now in the day, those that are now in the light, those that are now sober, um, and prepared. So that kind of gives you an update of where we're at. I'll put some notes in there. Moving forward, the contract. I think it's important to note that when we talk about the night, we go back and forth a little bit on that. Bad things always seem to happen. 
in the night time. I mean, that's just the worst time travel to be making important decisions. Um, we're typically very tired. We've got a, our guard is typically down. From his perspective, uh, I know in, in, um, in talking with people that are fighting sin, uh, sometimes nighttime can be an difficult time to fight sin because our, our, our preparation is down, our alertness is down, our guard is down. It seems like bad things happen That's at night. Doing everything. Um, um, where do you and he said he said he wanted us to watch the news. So and we see a lot of bad things happening. So I told him, I said, you're right. telling me that should be the minute. It happens. But the bulk of the bad stuff that's happening happens at night. For those uh, that, that uh, keep up with college athletics, it seems like if you're, if you're following a college football team, your guys get in trouble um, at night. I mean, Georgia consistently has people suspended oh, yeah, because they get arrested for being not ready by night. If we're they're using our own guy up along at night, they're eating marijuana at night. They're constantly making the decision at night, which is why a lot of coaches in the facts are curfew. Like, you can hold on to because nothing good happens after probably necessitates it. Bad things happen at night. And we and we see that Paul uses this illustration to really emphasize that people who are lost we don't have as much characterized because he's got in the full decision that he's made. I got a guy that wants to put a massage place in here. I got a guy that wants to put his Taekwondo place in here. Um, and I, mean, I, I think he even doubled his chances with drunk drunkenness. Not only do bad decisions happen at night, so we have to trust but it only gets compounded when someone is drunk say, okay, well, at night. Because then there's no semblance of any type of good decision getting made. And that's the extreme situation that Paul characterizes those who are unprepared for the return of Jesus. They are drunk people at night. They are incapable of making rational, good decisions in preparation. All they're concerned about is what they're doing for you know, maybe if we were having a and that's the extreme example that Paul shows is what it's like um, to be a lost person. I think it's important too, before we even start looking at this comparison, night people and day people are not determined that's what we're by their actions. I didn't tell him yet that we were getting Let me say that again. Night people and day people are not determined by their actions. Meaning talking what we do you want me to do not determine who we are. So Meaning, the nature for someone to not be a night person anymore, to become a day person that Paul talks about, is not going to start living like they Other questions about We don't perform good works to move into preparation for Jesus' return. We're not saying good works. It's important for us to know that because as we seek to evangelize, it's not our purpose to get people who we would identify as people who are in darkness, in the night, who are drunk and asleep to the return of Jesus. We don't try to get them to start acting like day people. Yeah, we talk about people who are some ways to do that. Share with you just a We're not determined by the things that we do. What we are is shown by the things that we do. But we're not made to be night people or day people by the things that we do. Good works don't make us people that are prepared for Jesus' return. We don't earn our salvation. And Paul makes this point. He says, the reason that you have hope in the second coming is not because you did anything. It's because Jesus died for you. Jesus yeah, dies for you. That. That's what makes you show you the light is that you put your faith in him. Not that you started living rightly. So this passage is not a call to people to start living rightly so that they're prepared for Jesus' return. Paul is telling them that because you're saved, you should be living differently. 
Um, and I think that's an important, important distinction for us to make. That, that our task is not to get people to live like this. Our purpose is to evangelize by sharing the gospel so that people become children of the light, children of the day, and that their actions change because of that. In other words, tonight people are unprepared because they are in darkness. Most likely today, day people are in the light. Normal. Paul contrasts them two different types of people. People that are prepared for Jesus' return, people that are. And he calls them people of the night. And they're not prepared because they're in darkness. Next week is meet here. I think we looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago, but in Luke, chapter 1. Hopefully, one Zachariah time, are talking about brainstorming sessions. John the Baptist and John the Baptist's purpose that I haven't thought of that you guys pick up on. It says in verse 76, and you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. This is in the forgiveness of their sins, especially everybody because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. We gotta have paint colors to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John the Baptist was supposed to proclaim this message that Jesus was coming as a type of sunrise, someone who brings light to the darkness, and in the Jewish mentality. The, the Old Testament times were considered a time of darkness, and the time of the Messiah was considered to be the dawn of a new day. But the darkness was passing away, and the new day was coming. And so we in the church age are kind of caught in between those two. The, the, the sunrise has started, but we're still to a level in darkness because we're waiting for Jesus to come back and put an end to it all. And that's yeah, that, 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 Sun is starting to rise, and you can kind of see it over here. But if you look over here, it's still real dark, and it doesn't look like the sun's coming up yet. We're kind of caught in between the two times. That's the Jewish understanding that before the Messiah, there's darkness, and then when he comes, the sun begins to rise. Shine the light into that darkness. And Zachariah is talking about that. When Jesus comes, he brings salvation. He shines the light into the darkness. And we see that picture again in Second um, Corinthians 4, Paul talking about those that are still in darkness. Um, even if it means we've got to go old school and... He says that they're veiled to the gospel. They're, they're blinded to the gospel. It says in their case, the God of this world who saved has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. I mean, we're not beyond that. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and that's going to be what we do next week. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is late, but ourselves and your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Which is why it would get Paul's point of emphasis really there is that the way you move from darkness to light is not to start living like people in the light, but to receive the light of Jesus Christ. That when Christ shines into our hearts and saves us, then we become children of light that begin to live the way God desires. Image bearers, people that reflect glory and worth back to God. So that's why this happens. So we're going to stay in the Freeman's Sasser next week because we need a place that we can all get to. We're going to live with the knowledge that the light brings. As people who are chosen that night early, and I'm trusting that's all of us in here. 
that we present the Christ as our Savior, that we have made the way of God Jesus to help. Because the exhortation to us this morning is to live with the knowledge that light brings, that this world is coming to an end, that Jesus is coming back. This is not the end all right here. That living for the things of this world is not going to last. These things will be here. You can identify things like this world like, hey, I want to be done. I want to be doing that. Like that we that live with like the knowledge of the light brings us. I'm going to knock that out this week on the city. This is this how things are going down. New, that we're going to need to know what needs to be added to that knowledge. Next, night people are unprepared because they are asleep. They are asleep while day people are awake. So... Night people are unprepared because they are asleep. Day people um, are away. What I would like to do is to use those two days. Now this is not the same. He's not using the word sleep in the same way he was using it in chapter 4. How is it being used in chapter 4? We're going to do some of that stuff. So if we got a little bit more sleep, we're going to use the word sleep. And on Sunday morning, on this final state, they're going to home. They have a future. They're coming back from this dead state. So you're waiting for the first to be a crisis. He's not talking about lost people being that's what they're dead. Doing. He's talking about uh, maybe we will have a child in so that we can kind of help them. They're kind of asleep. There's no regard for what we're supposed to be really efficient on getting as much of this stuff done. The moral difference in Mark and chapter 13, Jesus emphasizes this point as well. Mark 13, 32. If but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard and keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each when they have his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, so you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster comes, or in the morning. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, is what Jesus says. Stay awake. That is different to, to what we know is going to happen. We want to make sure that our... I think the, the picture that's, that's kind of going on here, I think it's similar to, um, you want to make sure that we've got people in place. You ever have out-of-town guests that maybe are coming here, and you're not exactly sure when they're going to come, and so usually they're going to take them to the tires at least. You know, hey, we're going to get home today because we've got people coming to town. We're not really sure that they're going to get here. Also, I'm still used to have to be here and be ready all day long. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. He says, you don't know exactly when I'm coming back. You know what's coming, though. And so it needs to kind of preoccupy your whole outlook on the day. Your whole outlook on your life. But Jesus can come at any time. You don't know exactly when. But think about it. When you know you have out of town guests coming, let's say Adam and Jen have his brother or his mom coming in. We might call them maybe you guys want to go out for lunch. No, we can't bring it out here because. Really, I noticed is we're not meeting anymore beyond. Luke chapter 21, verse 34. 
He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And is standing before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And Jesus tells them, says, don't be caught up in the things of this world. Don't become drunk. And I don't think when he's using drunk at any point does he really mean excessive wine drinking. I think he means becoming so consumed with the things of this world that it, that it skews your thinking, it skews your perspective on um, I mean, drunkenness online, I think, is his least of his concerns at this point. He's concerned about people becoming drunk on this world, that they're unprepared for Jesus coming back. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't do this. Don't fall asleep in that state. Stay awake, stay prepared to be ready. where we're at with our economy. To know what the price would be. Next night, people are so, unprepared because they are drunk. You have the option if he's like, well, day people are sober. Forty-five a month now for you to be here. Night people are unprepared because they are drunk. Day people are sober. Yeah, yeah. Remember Acts chapter two when um, uh, the day of Pentecost yeah, happened, and uh, and the apostles started speaking in tongues. And the tongues, for sure, in that passage are different languages, and people understand it. I mean, you've got Jewish people in that too. This is why it's so crucial to understand the prices that we're getting. You got Jewish people. At that point, Jewish people were dispersed in all the different areas. They spoke different languages. They would come to Jerusalem, which was a big stick to where celebrating the Passover and celebrating different festivals. They were there for a celebration. And the day of Pentecost happens, like, God wants to build this church. Well, what's the best way to build a church? Is to bring Jewish people from all over who are in town for a celebration, get them saved, and then send them back home. So they start sharing the gospel. And so that's what happens in the day of Pentecost. And, and Peter and the other disciples start teaching the gospel in a different language. And the response of the people were, they were drunk. Like, what's going on here? Very drunk. And, and the comment that's in the text is that it, it wasn't even at night time. And we had to give a little the bit of information. Is that kind of activity happened at night, not during the day? And so Paul is using the aspect of drunkenness as a description of lost people because the type of activity that characterizes people is in such a way that we are drunk on the table as we grow more. Whereas someone who's in the daytime feels drinking maybe something that they want to do, but they usually aren't doing it during the daytime. Right? Like, you've got to use that tendency. I mean, five o'clock, people get off work, that's when people start going to the bars. It's unusual for people to be heavily drinking during the day because we have duties and we have responsibilities and we have to be sober and away from the And that's why Paul's making his point is you're children of the day. You don't have time to just find out what's going to be this world. You've got things that you have to do. You thinking clearly. Making good decisions, good wise decisions with your time. Because Jesus is coming back. Because lost people are like drunk people at night. They're completely unconcerned about their responsibilities. They're just looking for a quick fix. They're looking for some time away from all the hustle and bustle of their life. So if he sends that over tomorrow and says, he says, you're going to be different. You're going to live differently. You're going to be self-controlled is what he's emphasizing here. Back in our text in 1 Thessalonians. 
carpeting both sides wall to wall. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk or drunk at night, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Sober carries the idea of being self-controlled. Being self-controlled, avoiding the excess of the things of this world. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Knowing that it would only Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Whereas giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to them that have reverence for Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians here, and he's going to use some of these same ideas as we finish up chapter 5, our responsibility for encouraging one another. But he emphasizes the point here, we're not to be drunk on wine, we're not to be drunk on the things in this world, we're to be filled with the Spirit. We're to be day people, people of the day, people of the light, who are being controlled by the Spirit, and not controlled by wine in this text. But even on a bigger scale in First Thessalonians, controlled by the things that his world talks to you. I mean, he does this type of thing, but he's not real heavy in the commercial. The emphasis is that sober people have proper priorities. The right things are important to them. When you're drunk, so I think that's you don't have the right priorities. Drunk people make poor decisions. I've had the unfortunate incident of being around people at times that were drunk. And you, you can kind of see that they are in a state that they don't need to be in. That they're incapable of making good, rational decisions. They're incapable of, of seeing what should be priority. We are going to part of what we're doing. They're prone to making good choices that may cost them for the long term. Because they're in a state where they're not Paul says, as children of the day, you should be sober. You should be self-controlled. Not drunk on the things of this world so that you're making good, lifelong decisions in the, in the, uh, in the context of scenes so that you can the big picture of eternity. You're making right decisions that you're sober, you're self-controlled. Obviously, the amount of money... Not only does he tell us this, he tells us to, as children of the day, to get dressed. That money getting I mean, it's characteristic of it like to, um, to not be properly dressed for what you need to be doing. I mean, we come home at night, we, we settle down, we, we change our clothes, we get really relaxed, and we begin to let our guard down, and, and we're preparing to sleep. Some people take advantage of that and, and, and use it to, to party it up and to get drunk. And that's the image that Paul's giving to us here. Right, so so nice to be people that are awake and are sober, but we're also people that have gotten out of bed and have gotten ready for the day. He tells us to get dressed, to armor up, to be prepared for Jesus coming back. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He tells us to get dressed, to suit up. I think it's important here that we don't try to press the metaphor of the armor of God. In Ephesians, what does he tell us the breastplate is? The breastplate of righteousness. 
I don't think it's worth spending time. Why does it say breastplate of righteousness in one passage and breastplate of faith and love in this passage? Paul's just simply using the imagery of a soldier, someone who's prepared for battle. I don't think we need to have like an extensive theology on what the armor of God is. I think he's simply telling us to be equipped with the right things that he uses as pictures of armor. That we need to have a correct understanding of righteousness. That our righteousness is no good. That Jesus is the only one that can save us from God's wrath there. But here specifically, he's working off what he's already been teaching them. Faith and love and hope. He says, be known for your faith. Be known for your hope. Be known for your love. Really and so he uses those three and pictures them as armor here. He says, put on this breastplate of protection. Put on this helmet of protection. Your faith, your love, and your hope. And it's the things that characterize children I asked some of my students, you have a lot of people say insurance on there. If you get only known for three things, like this is your reputation, these three things, this is what people would say about um, this. Is this an example? I would say that I would agree with these people. I put up Abraham Lincoln and we start listening to that. And, uh, we put up different celebrities that get that picture when you're famous. And I said, what do we put your name up here? We're going to be in the And I had to write that back. Led to the class, and for some of them, I was very, I was very sad before because their perspective on life is like probably one of my sixth and seventh grade. You know, I want to be known as funny. I want to be known as, as athletic. I want to be known as cool. So we kind of, you know, I kind of shared some of these things, and, and as nice as I could be, I said, "That's ridiculous!" Like you're telling me that's what you want to do. That's your reputation. Like you want to be known as funny, as athletic. And we talked about like. What does that look like on Judgment Day? Like, what do you want to be known for? And talk about being being funny on Judgment Day is going to be irrelevant. Being athletic on Judgment Day is going to be irrelevant. And I shared with him, I said, guys, based on my study of first Thessalonians, I want to be known as faithful. I want to be known as loving. I want to be known as Christian. Those are the three things that Paul says, church, you can know for you notice someone who is increasing in their faith, someone who is learning to trust truth more and more. We talk about what faith is, trusting truth. The way we increase our faith is we have more truth, more knowledge to put our trust in. There would be known as people who love others as opposed to loving ourselves. There would be people who have a, a big picture of what's happening. Like we see life from the big picture, that we're a part of a giant story of God's redeeming mankind. We fit in like in a real small portion of time here on this earth. But the big point is the big story. The word we're being saved for eternity and we live life like that. We live like we're preparing for eternity. I don't even know that's a man who does that. Who's increasing in his faith, who's trusting more and more truth every day. He's learning to love others more and more, putting others above myself. And someone who ultimately is not for living life with a view of the future. And not for the here and now. Meaning that I don't put my treasures in my house or in my possessions. I'm putting my treasures away for the future. I'm investing in God's kingdom. So anybody. That's what it tells them to arm themselves with. We have to train for it. We don't put on physical armor, but we pursue these things and we can tell them to pursue all along in First Thessalonians. All right, we all have truth that you can trust in. Wanted to start back on our men's discipleships. Um, and keep your hands like set September on the future. Not only things in this world, don't get drunk on the Sabbath, which is a Thursday. Just get dressed. Suit up. Let us know if you're interested. He, he so continued this analogy when he writes uh, to the Romans in Romans chapter 13. If you're interested in that, that'll start back the week of 
This is another section where he's talking about armor. Um, and he must have just been he also wants to start up. He's been really um, just obsessed with like the the military um, image because he uses it over and over. And he sees the parallels of the Christian. Who has to fight Darkness, 
I mean, that's what's characteristic of lost people. When you're in that type of state, you're unaware of your surroundings, you're unaware of what's going on, and you are oblivious to what's happening in the big picture. When you can't see, when it's nighttime and it's darkness, and then on top of that, you're drunk, you're just oblivious to what's going on around you. I mean, you just don't have an accurate picture. That's the, that's the, that's the idea that Paul's sharing with us about the lost. Day people, they realize God's plans. They see the past, present, and the future in light of God's story that he's telling, and they make decisions based on it. They see that God started something back in the, in, in the garden in Genesis, and he's going to finish it in the future when Jesus comes back. And, and, and people that are at the day see how they fit into that big, giant story of God's redemption. So we can see that, that we have a responsibility to be the right type of person, that we don't become the right type of person by, by changing the way we live. That the only way that we go from being children of the night to children of the day is through Jesus Christ. That we don't start trying to perform good works to be saved, that it's only through Christ, but that once we are saved, we are called to, to good works. That's what we're destined for. That's, a, that's, that's what God's purpose is for our life. Ephesians talks about this, that, that we were called to be holy and blameless. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That God has bestowed on us every spiritual blessing, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and blameless before Him. But that's what God's desire is for us to become these type of people. And that only happens after salvation. And I drilled into the heads of my kids, and I need to do better because they missed it on that quiz on Friday. Good works come after salvation. We can't be saved by our good works. And I still got kids right now that we're saved by good works, we're saved by baptism. We're not. Those things come after salvation. That's why baptism happens after salvation. That's why good works are emphasized after salvation because we don't redeem ourselves. It's only by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we start to act like children of the day. And what destiny do we have? And Paul describes the destiny of both these type of people. He says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Night people are destined for wrath, while day people have been delivered from wrath. Night people are destined for wrath, while day people have been delivered from it. Somebody give me a good definition of wrath. God's appropriate response to sin. Yeah, it's God's appropriate, it's proper response to our sin. It's right to think of it as anger. It's right for it to think, to think of it as like a, a furious type of anger. But it's wrong to think of God as losing his temper, having a bad day, getting up on the wrong side of the bed. That was the Greek concept of God. That you had to walk on eggshells that you wouldn't make a God angry on a certain day. That's not how God's described to us in the Word. He's described as having wrath towards sin. But it's appropriate. It's right. It's what we would expect. Now, I always use the illustration that if, if we were at a court because somebody's loved one had been murdered and, and we, we caught the guy, he's on trial and all the evidence says that he's guilty of it, and the judge said, guilty, 
life in prison or death penalty, that none of us would sit in the courtroom and say, man, he's just having a bad day today. I can't believe he didn't give him like two weeks in jail. Like he gave him like life in jail. No, you get that response and say, good. Good, like that's a good judge. He did what he shouldn't have done. That's the appropriate thing to do there. He, he has to do that. He's not angry up there in the sense that he's not, you know, space hasn't turned all red and he's not screaming. He's angry. He's angry that this guy broke the law. That's God's response to sin. He's angry over it. He's furious over it. But it's right. It's appropriate. And Paul gives us the comfort here. He says, we're not destined for it. We're not destined to, to interact with God that way. In John 5, 24, Jesus shares the same thing with his disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, passing from darkness to light. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We've already taught on this passage. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're not destined to experience God's wrath. We've been saved from it. And the way that we're saved from it is that, that our wrath that we deserved was poured out on Christ on the cross. It's not that, that, that God just doesn't pour out His wrath that we deserve. God can't do that. It's like, it's like pulling a grenade, like it has to go off. Like it has to, it has to have impact. When God's wrath is stored up, when it's filled up, He has to pour it out. And so God just, doesn't just look down on people and say, well, because I love you, because I, because I like you, I'm not going to pour my wrath out on you. But yes, the Christian is not destined for wrath, but only because Christ steps in and absorbs that wrath for us. It's the doctrine of propitiation. That Jesus appeases God's wrath for us. That Jesus takes the wrath for us. I think David Platt's used the illustration before. It's, it's like a man standing before um, a giant uh, dam of water, and that water being busted open, and we deserve to be consumed by it, and a man being able to swallow all of that at one time and take it and, and protect us from that. That's what Jesus does. He absorbs God's wrath. That's why Jesus, or Paul says, we're not destined for it because Jesus died for us. The wrath has already been poured out. Which really has, should have big implications for us on a daily basis. That when we sin, that when we sin, we're, we're children of the day, but we still sin. We still make poor decisions at times. We still sometimes try to gratify our flesh. The encouragement is that when we confess those sins, we're able to receive full forgiveness knowing that it's done and dealt with. I don't have to fear this on judgment day. I don't have to worry about receiving some type of future punishment for this. Because it's already been done. It's already been poured out. So that should have huge daily implications for us. Just in our own dealing with our own sin. Next in your notes there, the dead and the alive Christians are destined for salvation. Dead Christians, we see in chapter 4, and alive Christians in chapter 5 are destined for salvation.
I think it's important that we we maintain a proper perspective on wrath, that we don't lose sight of the fact that we we deserve God's wrath, that we should be receiving God's wrath on the day of the Lord. Because I think when we maintain that perspective, when we maintain that proper fear, I think it motivates us to, to, to pursue um, sharing the gospel with others. And I, I commented this on the city in... Um, 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul makes this point. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul's saying, like, understanding the wrath and the fury, having a correct perspective on who God is, and His relationship to His creation and how He can't tolerate sin, understanding all that, it motivates us to persuade men. It motivates us to make sure that those that are around us are prepared for the day of the Lord. And we're commended for doing that if we do it. In Daniel chapter 12, an Old Testament passage on the day of the Lord. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to the shame and everlasting contempt. Verse 3, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The response to this teaching is to shine like stars. We're children of the light, and so we shine the light into the darkness. We persuade men to repent. We persuade men like Noah did to get ready for the coming judgment. That we take the knowledge of the day of the Lord, we find comfort in it, but then we also pass it off to others. We inform them that they're in darkness. We inform them that they're drunk. We inform them that they're children of the night and that the day is coming, the sunrise is coming, and they've got to be ready for it. The implications for us in your notes. God does not appoint, determine, or destine us to endure what we deserve, which is wrath. Instead, He determined for us to receive what we don't deserve, which is His grace and mercy. He doesn't appoint, determine, or destine us to endure what we deserve. Instead, He determined for us to receive what we don't deserve. I mean, think about it. We're people who have offended a holy God, and it would be natural for us to think that the way the story goes is how God gets even with this creation. I don't know why I was, I was studying this and thinking about this, and I was thinking about the mantra of the guy in um, Princess Bride, who has the guy who killed his dad, and his life is devoted to give this guy what he thinks he deserves. I mean, there's no grace and mercy in his heart leading up to that encounter. It's, hey, all I can think about is giving that guy what he deserves. But what we find out is that that's not how God's story goes. It's that we're a creation that's offended the holy God, but he wrote it into the story that we would not receive his wrath, that he planned for it. He planned before the foundation of the world for Jesus to die in our place. But that's how he wrote the story. 
That should provide overwhelming comfort to us to know that this is how the story goes. That this is how he wrote it. That we're not destined for wrath. That we don't get what we rightfully deserve. That we're saved from it. That we obtain salvation. That we're spared from this day of the Lord that should be so dreadful, but actually becomes so glorious to those that are children of the day. The second implication is that my future salvation... My future life depends on God's purposes and Christ's work, not my performance or feelings. See, you being not destined for wrath has nothing to do with your performance here. It has nothing to do with that. He says, Have put on the breastplate of faith and love and for hell with the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. See, God's purpose is is that we won't get wrath. God says, this is not how the story goes. You're not getting wrath. I'm going to make sure, I'm going to write this into the story. That Jesus comes and absorbs wrath from my people. You don't get wrath. So it's based on how God's writing the story that we don't get it. And it's also based on Jesus' work that he does in our place. So we don't have to fear on a daily basis whether we're going to get it one day or not. We're not destined for it. Instead, we're destined for the opposite, to obtain salvation. And the application for us is that we waste this teaching If we fail to do verse 11, we waste this teaching if we fail to do verse 11. It says, therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. The church is to be a community of mutual support. We must encourage each other with our theology. You get that? Like, we have to take this teaching, this whole stretch of teaching from chapter 4 to chapter 5. Paul tells us to take this teaching and to encourage people in the church with it. That we take the information, the theology, the knowledge of who God is and what he's doing in his story. We have to take that and encourage each other. Encourage each other in the midst of death. Encourage each other in the midst of life struggles where we want to live in the things of this world. That we fight to encourage each other that the things of this world aren't worth it. That we're day people and not night people. And we talked about this in our, in our group last week. That we have to learn to be people that are, that are restlessly patient. People that are content now with being dissatisfied with the things of this world, knowing that it's going to be better one day in the future. That we don't look for fulfillment here on this earth. That we expect our relationships to be broken. We expect for things not to fully satisfy our heart's longings. Marriage doesn't satisfy it. Being a parent doesn't satisfy it. Possessions don't satisfy it. There's, there's, a, there's a desires in our heart that can never be satisfied by the things of this world. And we will experience what God intended for us to experience in creation when he comes back and sets things right. Relationships will be enjoyed the way that they're supposed to. No selfishness. Just mutual love and support for each other. We won't ever have to be frustrated about why didn't you call me? Why didn't you encourage me? Why don't you care enough about me? 
that we'll all do that the way that we're supposed to. We're to encourage each other with this theology. We fail. We fail in, in studying eschatology if we don't do that. This, this, this discussion for these past few weeks is a big failure. Yeah, we might increase our knowledge about what's going to happen. Maybe I've increased your knowledge a little bit about rapture, millennium, and all those things. But it's a big fail if we don't encourage each other with it. We're to be a church community that loves each other, that supports each other, that encourages each other. And I challenge you to, to, to figure out how you want to do that. Like in our group last week, we discussed how, how, how can you encourage me? What do I find encouraging? And we, we let everybody kind of go around and share that. And maybe something that you want to kind of share in the city. Like, hey guys, this is what's extremely encouraging to me. When I'm fighting sin, when I'm trying to, um, to live for Christ during the week, this is how the church can encourage me. This is how you guys can encourage me. I would challenge you to share that. Maybe not on the entire city page, but you can share it within your secret page. So that we kind of know better how to encourage one another. Because it's what we're called to do. It's what we have to do. I'm going to pray for us. And um, then I'll give you some time to ask any questions that you might have. And uh, we'll get ready to go. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this teaching. Um, God, I thank you that you've given us information about the end times. But you didn't just do it to satisfy our curiosity. You did it to build up the church. God, I'm thankful that you've called us into the light. You've called us out of darkness. You've prepared us for the sunrise. God, I'm thankful that we're saved, that that we're not destined for wrath. God, we're so thankful that Jesus came and lived a perfect, righteous life on our behalf. That he absorbed your wrath on our behalf. God, I pray that we would live in the reality of that, that we would be sober and self-controlled and awake. God, that we would look drunk to lost people because our life just doesn't make sense. God, that it would look like we're making irrational decisions because it's so different from what everybody else is doing. God, we pray ultimately that you would continue to work in this church, that you would grow us up in our faith. God, that you would prepare us over the next few weeks because we've got a lot of work to do. God, I pray that we would rally around the fact that we are building your kingdom. These things are important for the long haul as we seek to build your church here. God, I pray that you give us much wisdom that we need. That you would rally us together in, in unity. That we would pursue this together. That we would get the things accomplished that we need to. So we can be better prepared to serve you and the people that you desire to to bring into your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions on the text today or anything that we talked about today?